But in a lot of patients with uh, disorders of gut-brain interaction, that sympathetic system tends to rev in situations that really aren't dangerous. So for example, you walk into the grocery store and all of a sudden you're, you get a sensation in your stomach and you think, oh my gosh, I need to get to the bathroom immediately. But you're, you know, you don't know where it is. And so that's gonna kick up your heart rate. It's going to make your breathing short and shallow. It might tense your muscles. All of this is driven by your sympathetic system, which can then have an impact on quickening your motility, how fast things are moving through your digestive tract, which can then lead to GI distress. Welcome to the Metagenics Institute podcast, a place where you can hear from the leading experts in health and wellness from scientists and researchers to internationally recognized clinicians. Enjoy this insightful conversation with host Nathan Rose. Hi everybody, welcome back to another episode of Metagenics Institute podcast. I'm your host, Nathan Rose, and I'm pleased today to be joined by Dr. Megan Rao from Michigan. Hi, Megan. Hello, thank you for having me. My pleasure. So. Today, we're going to talk about your role as a GI psychologist in this interesting area of psychogastroenterology. So to start off with, I'm curious on the the origins of this discipline and how you got involved. So um, imagine you're a psychologist, sort of a general air quote psychologist by background and training, and you found yourself working in a gastroenterology department at Michigan. So can you describe what a, a GI gastroenterologist, uh, GI psychologist does and, and how, how this field evolved? Yeah, I got a clinical psychology degree. So my doctorate was from um, a, a school in Chicago and um, I learned about a postdoctoral fellowship at uh, Northwestern University that was housed in their gastroenterology department, but it was a, a health psychology fellowship focused on working with patients with gastrointestinal issues. And I thought that's interesting. Um, in my training, I had done some work in the health kind of sector, and I enjoyed that work. Um, and I thought, hey, if, if I don't like this, then I just am doing about a year of it and I can go do something else. Um, but I, I very quickly learned that many of the interventions that I had trained in, like cognitive behavioral therapy, um, were very effective with this patient population. Um, a lot of the patients with GI conditions at Northwestern um, were coming for second, third, fourth opinions because they were so bothered by their symptoms and their symptoms, their diagnoses like irritable bowel syndrome or Crohn's disease, ulcerative colitis, um, esophageal conditions like uh, GERD uh, were having profound impacts on their quality of life. And um, this training program was basically the only place in the country that was was really focused on training GI psychologists. And um, so the interventions that I I knew pretty well worked, the patients got better, and um, the field of psychogastroenterology was really growing. Um, And so from my postdoctoral fellowship at Northwestern, I was recruited by the University of Michigan's uh, GI division and um, 
started there back in, I think, 2014. And um, our program has really kind of come to be one that's known for being integrative. And uh, we take a holistic approach with uh, working with dietitians that are specialized in um, GI conditions. Our gastroenterologists are extremely collaborative and um, we have three GI psychologists in our division that play a really important role in working with our patients. So that's a, a kind of the, the road to Michigan. Um, and and it's it's been a really exciting ride. Yeah, it sounds like it. It's really exciting. Yeah, it's, and the, the community, the, the gastroenterologist community have um, embraced this idea of GI psychologists. Yeah, you know, there are about 400, just over 400 GI psychologists in the world. And when we think about irritable bowel syndrome, for example, there are about 40 million Americans that have IBS. And so, you know, when we think about how difficult it can be to treat um, that diagnosis, given all the factors that can contribute, nutrition, uh, medical aspects, um, you know, the, the gut microbiome, psychology, I think we're going to get into some of this in, in a little while, but um, gastroenterologists recognize they can't treat this all on their own in a lot of cases. And um, these patients tend to, you know, they can be very high healthcare utilizers and, um, and they don't respond um, fully to medications in a lot of cases. And so, um, I think once gastroenterologists have the opportunity to refer to a, a GI psychologist and work together, because it is, it's very collaborative, um, we, we kind of mutually see the benefits for the patients. And, and then oftentimes it's, it's that one GI psychologist is never enough for the practice. <laughs> Word kind of gets out and the effectiveness of the interventions that we're able to use are um, the, the patients enjoy them. And, and so, yes, the, the gastroenterologist buy-in is, is both important and um, very collaborative. Yeah, bet. And so how do you spend your time? You're, you've got a, there's a clinic there, you're seeing patients, you're also publishing research, you're, you're conducting research as well? Um, I've, done, I've been doing a lot of work in the education space of educating gastroenterologists on um, you know, which, which patients are appropriate for our brain gut behavioral therapies. Um, because they're, you know, sometimes at Michigan, we have 100 gastroenterologists in our division and, and trainees. We have fellows and, and residents that cycle through our, our division. So we have a very large pool of gastroenterologists to refer to. Um, so that's a good and a bad thing because they can't send everybody to three of us. Um, and so we really have, have learned that gastroenterologists around the country and the world also um, need to know which patients are most appropriate for us versus, you know, maybe sending a patient for a general mental health treatment because the, the work that we do is very different from a general mental health provider. Um, so that's a space that I really, uh, I, I really enjoy that educational space. Um, but yes, uh, I've done, you know, some, that's another exciting part of this job is that, you know, I'm interested in disordered eating and, and what that looks like. And, and again, how do we screen those patients and make sure that we're not missing things um, so that we can help them to feel better? Um, and again, educating those that might be a part of their treatment team on things to look for. 
Yeah, yeah. Hopefully we can touch upon those patients as well. So looking at the patients that you, you see, uh, I understand the majority are like uh, functional digestive issues, IBS, um, dyspepsia and so forth, but also even more organic conditions like um, inflammatory bowel disease. Can you mm -hmm. describe the sort of the, 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 the broad patients that you see? With the patients that have, um, you know, the functional gastrointestinal issues, and, and now we're, the terminology that we're tending to, to lean toward is that disorders of gut-brain interaction, or DGBI, um, those are going to be patients that have irritable bowel syndrome, functional diarrhea, uh, chronic idiopathic constipation, dyspepsia, um, you know, and also then some of the, like I was talking about earlier, the upper GI complaints, globus, where there's the sensation that there's something stuck in the throat, but organically there's nothing there. Um, and and uh, dysphagia, functional dysphagia, where there's a difficulty swallowing, which can oftentimes psychologically lead to concerns about choking and their breath. But again, we they do the medical workup and um, it's unremarkable. So those patients are, are excellent for our programs and, and our types of uh, treatment. And then on the uh, inflammatory bowel disease spectrum, really helping patients with chronic disease management. So um, stress management, uh, relaxation-based interventions, resilience training. Um, uh, we can apply some of the DGBI interventions like uh, gut-directed hypnosis and cognitive behavioral therapy to helping as management strategies. So those are not going to cure um, Crohn's disease or ulcerative colitis, but um, helping patients to feel like they have a big toolbox with which they can help cope and manage their chronic illness um, is tremendously beneficial. So we really do see a wide range of patients with gastrointestinal conditions. Um, and then kind of what that treatment plan looks like is often tailored to the individual. And yeah, we'll look at the, the therapies shortly, um, but it does suggest, obviously you can treat a wide range of conditions and even also, also those organic ones. Um, so just to, before we dive into therapies, maybe a bit of a, a refresher for our listeners, uh, as I was saying offline, our, our listeners are often quite um, gut-centric. They understandably are very focused on the gut, the microbiome, maybe intestinal permeability, et cetera, and how that can affect not only GI health, but and now we're seeing things like psychobiotics, that uh, probiotics can affect brain function, cognition, mood, et cetera. But on the flip side, that's a bi-directional um, communication and obviously the, the brain talks to the gut. So just wanted to rehash, can you describe perhaps maybe how you say to your patients or with a bit of um, technical detail, how do you sort of frame up the, the way that the, the brain can uh, affect and influence gut function? So I think the psychoeducation piece in itself is, is a, a piece of brain-gut behavioral therapy. And, it, and so that language to help a patient understand that, you know, your brain and your gut are constantly communicating. And in patients that have irritable bowel syndrome, uh, that communication pathway is kind of turned up. Um, and so the, the gut is sending signals up to the brain, sometimes that it doesn't necessarily need to send up. And the brain is paying attention to that and sending signals down. 
And, and so we, we know that that turns up the sensory experience for patients. And so we've seen research that shows that patients with IBS are potentially feeling more pain, more pain intensely, um, based on that brain-gut behavioral pathway. And a lot of things can influence that. Early life childhood experiences, stress, um, uh, you know, other things that can compromise the immune system. Um, and, and so when you can learn that we can impact that brain-gut pathway based on how we think, how we behave, um, by learning different brain-gut behavioral therapies, um, that's really powerful for a patient because we can. We can get at the heart of that brain-gut communication pathway by teaching patients strategies to help down-regulate pain signals that are coming from the gut. And, and we know that that's something that we see in, in patients with IBS is that, you know, they're experiencing pain and their brain is having a hard time turning down those signals and, and something called visceral hypersensitivity, which really can't be, you know, a colonoscopy isn't going to encompass uh, nerve sensitivity. So it can be very frustrating for our patients to hear, you know, oh, you're, everything looks good. Everything's normal. Um, when they're in severe pain and they're having multiple bowel movements. So being able to explain that, you know, along your brain gut access, your autonomic nervous system, which can help to regulate emotions and, and pain and uh, signals coming from the, the body, um, that can't be captured by a lot of the medical workups that you've done. But by learning about the way the brain and gut communicate and how we can impact that, then we can make some changes over time. Yeah. And also, you mentioned there, obviously, the pain sensitivity and so forth, but it also it can extend to the brain controlling motility and so forth, because you mentioned other conditions. It's, it's, it goes above and beyond pain sensations, could it? Yeah. So it can quicken motility. For example, um, you know, in, in situations where your sympathetic system is revving. So most of us can experience that if you've ever had butterflies in your stomach during a stressful situation, and maybe that has sent you to the bathroom really quickly. That's a really good way to help patients identify that that's your sympathetic system revving, your brain's fight, flight, or freeze response. And we all have that built into our system. It's, it's supposed to be protective. But in a lot of patients with uh, disorders of gut-brain interaction, that sympathetic system tends to rev in situations that really aren't dangerous. So for example, you walk into the grocery store and all of a sudden you're, you get a sensation in your stomach and you think, oh my gosh, I need to get to the bathroom immediately, but you're, you know, you don't know where it is. And so that's going to kick up your heart rate. It's going to make your breathing short and shallow. It might tense your muscles. All of this is driven by your sympathetic system, which can then have an impact on quickening your motility, how fast things are moving through your digestive tract, which can then lead to GI distress. Um, and so helping people to understand the physiological responses of a stressful event um, and, and that then how you respond to that stressor can make a big difference in terms of gaining control, um, learning that your breathing, uh, for example, slowing your breathing down, engaging in diaphragmatic breathing can activate um, your body's parasympathetic system, which is its relaxation response. So I'll teach people about that kind of 
um, yin and yang of the, the sympathetic and the parasympathetic and, and how they can work together and um, giving them strategies so that they feel when they can recognize what's happening in the time of stress and then how they respond can really make a difference in terms of the outcome of that trip to the grocery store, for example. Yeah, yeah, it's a nice, nice example. I'm sure a lot of our practitioners know patients that exactly like that. Um, and you have to ensure they've got enough uh, toilet stops on the way home from work and so forth. I'm sure you know well better than I do about how distressing and how it can really impact quality of life. Well, that's another example of kind of the cognitive processes that a lot of our patients experience too. So, you know, uh, pain catastrophizing, symptom catastrophizing, anticipatory anxiety, GI specific anxiety. Um, so we take all of those concepts and help patients identify when they're engaging in those cognitions and, and the impact of those thoughts on their body and, um, and, and utilize different interventions to help them modify their, their thinking and, and help them, them with their coping. Yeah. I just want to uh, underscore a couple of things you, you touched upon. As I said, in our area, we have historically looked at more the uh, differences in the gut between IBS patients and healthy controls, say with microbiome composition and um, intestinal permeability. But some, you mentioned some factors in your papers around this biopsychosocial model and factors like patients who develop IBS have, um, I suppose, uh, uh, personality traits or profiles that make them more prone to things like catastrophizing and this idea of um, hypervigilance, like continually monitoring their symptoms. Can you describe some of these um, findings from the research on, on sort of the, the um, psychology of patients more prone to IBS? Yeah. So when we think about, you know, applying uh, different brain gut behavioral therapies, for example, cognitive behavioral therapy, it's recognizing that, you know, the thoughts, the feelings, the behaviors can be learned and, and influenced based on their experiences with their, their IBS symptoms. Um, so if they've had a couple instances of, um, you know, every time I have an exam coming up um, and I'm going to the bathroom 15 times, they start to be prone to this catastrophizing or this anticipatory anxiety. And so, you know, before the exam is even um, talked about, you know, patients are, are two weeks away and, and they're already just thinking about the exam can lead to a stomach ache. And, and so we, we utilize kind of the, the negative emotions, the maladaptive cognitive processes of, of these patients and we apply different um, techniques to help them uh, navigate the way they've been, uh, you know, managing this, this illness. So we can do um, exposure therapy can be very helpful. Um, cognitive restructuring where we help patients to identify the way they're thinking. And then we work through um, together in sessions ways to think more flexibly or to challenge their worst case scenario with, okay, let's say that happens. And um, how would you actually cope with that? So they kind of see that, well, number one, 
uh, worst case scenario doesn't actually happen very often. Um, there's a fun technique, probability versus possibility. So I'll ask a patient, you know, how many times have you actually failed an exam because you haven't been able to get there because of your GI symptoms? And they might, you know, they might say, well, I've um, never had that happen. But yet you worry about it every single day as if it's happened. And and so the probability is is zero right now. But but sure, it, it's possible that that could happen. Or another one would be um, that, you know, how many times have you actually had a bowel accident versus how much do you? And so we start to help them see that, you know, first worst case doesn't happen very often. But yet if it does, what would we actually employ to cope with this? And so this kind of cognitive behavioral therapy model has been extremely well researched in the literature um, and is highly uh, durable in terms of once patients learn these skills, not only are they effective for managing their IBS, but they also can manage you know, other aspects of general anxiety that can come up here or there. Um, as well as you know, gut-directed hypnosis is, is targeting the symptoms in a slightly different way where um, we're kind of looking at the heightened state of focus and awareness um, on their symptoms and we're using um, suggest uh, hypnotic suggestions to um, again address the stress on the body um, the maladaptive cognitive processes that that we have around our symptoms and um, also the sensations that, that one experiences. So the abdominal pain, the cramping, the spasming, the urgency. And by doing hypnosis, which is um, in a way a deeply relaxing strategy, um, I'd say kind of the, the techniques are um, deep relaxation, very similar to guided meditation, and then autogenics, which are suggestions about heaviness and warmth in the body. And, um, and a lot of us are using scripted protocols that we can tailor to the patient, but a lot of these scripted protocols are the evidence-based strategies that have been, again, well-researched, effective in meta-analyses, um, effective in randomized controlled trials, and, and so we don't have to do much to to, to use them and, and have them be effective. And, and so it's the CBT and, and gut-directed hypnosis right now that have the most evidence-based literature, um, but, but there are some things coming down the pipeline that are also very exciting, as well as the delivery model. Um, so another area of, of my interest is applying these types of therapies using digital therapeutics and um, and, and there's some really exciting products that are coming down the pipeline that I think will get patients access to these therapies in a way that we haven't necessarily been able to do yet. Well, so many points. <laughs> I don't know if I can cover them all. I've, I've, so many notes I'm making. It's brilliant. Um, one overarching question is, I was just thinking as you're describing these patients, there are maybe catastrophizing around their gut symptoms with say maybe particularly CBT do you find there's pleasant quote-unquote side effects to these patients lives outside of their gut like do they are they catastrophizing could they be catastrophizing in more general and so forth and they're they're, they're seeing a spillover effect to other components of their lives so that's a great question because it does help us to differentiate the patients that are 
ready for GI psychology versus those that may be better suited for a general mental health provider. So when it is more general catastrophizing that like, you know, life is bad, every area of my life is hard, that of course these patients are probably going to deal with chronic health issues as well. But, you know, we have to stabilize their general mental health first for our brain gut behavioral therapies to be as effective as they can be. So um, that's part of our assessment when we're seeing patients and also part of part of that education for uh, the gastroenterologist or the referring provider is, you know, if there is a spillover and there's catastrophes all over, let's prioritize those patients to general mental health first. Yeah, that makes sense. And do you uh, combine, say, CBT and gut-directed hyp- hypnosis and or or certain patients resonate with either therapies? How do you sort of discern which ones are better for for patients? Um, when a patient is is more cognizant of, you know, so I'll go back to the 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 college student, right? Or or the person that every time they have a work meeting, you know, they they really are going through this algorithm in their mind of, you know, my symptoms are going to get away in the way. I'm going to be embarrassed. My boss is going to be mad at me. I'm not going to be able to present well. You know, and and I can recognize they have several maladies, you know, the anticipatory anxiety. I'm going to start them on some basic relaxation strategies to help them kind of recognize that when those thoughts are really kind of ramped up, let's take a couple of deep breaths just to calm down that sympathetic system first and kind of get them comfortable recognizing that when they're thinking that way, their body is probably tensing. They're probably taking really short, shallow breaths and what the difference is in terms of starting to relax their body. But then I'm going to do more kind of CBT work with them to help them observe those thoughts and and work through some of the the specific CBT techniques to give them tools and strategies to help mitigate the effects of their thinking. If a patient first is coming to me and, you know, they are more so complaining and recognizing that, you know, their body, they, they have a lot of pain, they have a lot of tension, they... Um, are really struck. They, they acknowledge I have a hard time relaxing. I can't relax. Then I may go more hypnosis with them, getting them started with hearing and, and building a better relationship with what they can think about their gut, that, that giving them those suggestions of calming and soothing the digestive tract. And um, there's, there's homework between our sessions where they're practicing these interventions. Um, and so Certainly, there can be a combination of of both some CBT strategies, some hypnosis. You know, in some cases, I can very easily do, you know, an introduction to a CBT technique and then spend the rest of the session doing a hypnosis session. Um, So it really is, again, kind of up to the practitioner, the psychologist in terms of what that individual patient needs. Yeah. So for practitioners listening, um, are there, I'm just trying to think of like a spectrum, obviously there's yourself and only 400 other or 399 other uh, GI psychologists in the world. So um, they may not be accessible, particularly face-to-face. I'm just thinking about the spectrum of between uh, pra- other things, practitioners, a, a simple, um, harmless uh, 
suggestions around deep breathing and so forth, relaxation. And then I think there's apps now for like hip, GI hypnosis. I'm not sure how, how good they are. And then obviously online um, consultations. What's some of the potential um, tools that practitioners can start thinking about they can employ themselves and also refer on to other, other um, specialists? Diaphragmatic breathing is is a, a wonderful technique that really anybody in you know registered dietitians can bring this up with patients. Um, general mental health providers can help patients again have some insights into the connection between their body and and their breath, um, and then even you know primary care gastroenterologist etc. So. Um, the way I teach diaphragmatic breathing is this insight that as you move and, and breathe lower and deeper into the gut and you move your diaphragm, it actually uh, provides intestinal massage, calming and soothing in a way that our normal chest breathing doesn't. So it's a really helpful tool, again, for body relaxation and calming, and it kind of gives you something to focus on. Um, but also, it, again, it, it can help slow down motility. So if you're having urgency from cramping and spasming, that diaphragmatic breathing can actually help with diarrhea. And then on the other spectrum with constipation, it can help to have a more complete bowel movement by um, practicing this lower, deeper breath um, while sitting on the toilet and kind of proper proper potty positioning. So, uh, you know, the squatty position or the squatty potty is actually like good uh, positioning for, for having a bowel movement. So um, I actually have a YouTube clip. If you just Google my name and diaphragmatic breathing, um, we, we did a, a very like it's about a three minute demonstration that a ton of practitioners have been utilizing and and find helpful. So um, once you've watched that a couple times, you're welcome to share it with patients. And, and so that's that's an, an easy technique. That's a, a low risk, high reward type of thing. Um, and then you mentioned that the apps probably because I mentioned them. Um, but, you know, Nerva is a, a gut directed hypnosis app out of out of uh, some research from Monash University and Dr. Simone Peters in uh, Australia there. She is phenomenal and, and has worked with the team to create a really good product. So anybody can download that on um, from wherever you download apps. I have no uh, financial, uh, nothing to, to gain there by, by talking about them outside of. It's, it's what I think is a, a good product. Um, and, and again, any patient that is not an appropriate patient for a GI psychologist. So if you have um, severe mental health issues, psychosis, anything with altered cognition, um, altered cognitive states, um, then you should really seek out general mental health first. Um, so none of these apps are meant to replace um, general mental health treatment or an assessment with a physician. And, and that's really important. Um, to keep in mind. And also I, I encourage patients that are considering using any of these apps that, that say that they, they work on uh, gastrointestinal conditions, get a workup with a doctor first to ensure that you, you know, your diagnosis and that you're treating the right thing. Hey everyone, just a quick break from the podcast to see if you can help us. 
We're looking for patients to help us in a trial we're trying to conduct on endometriosis. Dr. Mike Armour from Western Sydney University is conducting a study on a product of ours for endometriosis and we're looking for volunteers. So if you know anyone or yourself who would be interested in doing this trial, it's for anyone in Australia with endometriosis who is aged between 18 and 45 and has a diagnosis of endometriosis, so they can apply. And they will be randomized to receive either our product Gynoclear or a matching placebo. And this goes for three months. And what we ask of the participants is they need to fill in pain and symptom diaries every day. Now, this can be done all over Australia. The study's done online. And there's only the only in-person task we ask is to get some blood tests at no charge to the participant. This is at the start and at the end of the study at a local collection centre. So to find out more information, you can go to this link below. I'll put it in the show notes, but also here, www.nicm.edu.au forward slash research forward slash clinical underscore trials forward slash endometriosis underscore study a long name so I'll put the link in the show notes but yeah love if you could help out uh, Dr. Mike Armour at Western Sydney University to help with this study. All right now back to the podcast. And finally just on the therapies you said there's some emerging therapies in the pipeline what are some of the things that are emerging and you're excited about? So virtual reality is one of them. Um, It's it's quite fascinating. I was actually at a conference um, recently and Dr. Brennan Spiegel um, was was talking about his research in virtual reality with patients, um, kind of a spectrum of gastrointestinal patients. Um, And so the application of virtual reality interventions is really very similar to how we use our brain-gut behavioral therapies. It's working on Um, altering the way a patient is perceiving their pain and their experience with their symptoms. Um, And so he, there's, there's really exciting research that's happening in, in the use of virtual reality with patients with irritable bowel syndrome and chronic abdominal pain. Um, And so I think we're going to see that as a really interesting and exciting um, option for patients. Again, um, increasing access to these types of interventions, which which we have to do. We're, there's too many patients that need this type of treatment. And so we have to think more globally than kind of one-to-one practitioner services. Yeah, it's, yeah very good point. Are there group sessions um, practitioners do around? There are. Yep. So, so there's group hypnotherapy that um, that can be done. There's group cognitive behavioral therapy. Um, the pandemic really forced us um, to kind of see the effectiveness of these interventions delivered virtually. And um, you know, even before the pandemic, we were doing um, some work with virtual and telephone, and finding that. Um, it was just as effective as in person. Um, 
However, you know, because of the pandemic, we can do like we've found that it's effective to do group Zoom hypnosis, um, which, you know, we just it's a whole new way of thinking about things. Um, so I, 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 again, think that for the access piece where, you know, before we would kind of count on about 25% of our patients a week, probably no showing, usually because they didn't want to get in the car to drive for two hours to come see me in my office because of pain or symptoms or a flare up of, of whatever. And so now that I'm almost exclusively seeing patients virtually, um, my no-show rates are, are almost none. Um, and so patients are also doing really well learning these interventions from the comfort of their home or their office. Um, and, and so I, I I think that it will continue to be in the patient's best interest to have a wide range of delivery models for them to choose from. Brilliant. Yeah, I never thought about the the no-shows, how that could reduce with them virtual consultations. It's great. All right, with the last few remaining minutes, it's probably a, a, a larger discussion itself, but I wanted to uh, just inquire with you. You've published some research and commentary around disordered eating in gut conditions. Um, so many of our practitioners uh, employ restrictive diets and for really important um, reasons because they have pain and so forth and and patients get benefits from whether it's dairy, gluten, but particularly FODMAPs is well researched. Um, but there can be a, you know, a double-sided sword here that, that people may become uh, fixated on these or um, they could you know create a bit of a spiral so can you describe your interest and in, in what you've looked at and your thoughts around um, this spectrum of disordered eating in, in gut disorders yeah so Kate Scarlotta is a, a GI registered dietitian and really has been in the low FODMAP space for a, a long time and is very respected in that space but she and I have been more recently conversing around, you know, the, the psychological effects and impacts on patients that maybe have a history of disordered eating and then are placed on um, a restrictive diet and that that's, that's not in their best interest. Um, and, and also, again, going back to this idea of, of working with gastroenterologists and educating them on what to look for, because sometimes the gastroenterology clinic is the first place where a patient is disclosing that because of my pain um, after eating, I've restricted myself so much that now I'm only eating five foods. Or I found the low FODMAP diet on the internet and I've been following it for the last year. And, um, and the gastroenterologist is kind of gathering this information of, um, well, you're not doing the low FODMAP diet correctly because you haven't reintroduced anything. And, and literature shows that the low FODMAP diet is, is most effective when it's done under the guidance of a registered dietitian who knows the low FODMAP diet. And I think part of that is protective because they're having these conversations with patients. And if they find out that the patient has a history of disordered eating or eating disorder, they're able to modify the diet and or steer away from restrictive diets completely because it's, again, um, a very slippery slope for these patients. So part of, of my interest is, one, 
just having open conversations as as providers with with these individuals that it makes perfect sense. If eating hurts, then you're going to make changes to it. But how do we do that in a way that's going to be healthy and not lead to malnutrition or um, reactivating an eating disorder that has been in remission for years? Um, and so really looking at the literature and finding out, again, this was a study that, that Dr. Peters did, that when you compared patients that were put in the low FODMAP diet to those that were um, referred for gut-directed hypnosis, outcomes were very similar. So it shows that, you know, if somebody has a, a history of eating disorder, steer away from the, the maybe the nutrition side and, and, and make a referral for working with a GI psychologist instead. Um, so, you know, the clinical pearls that, that I think are most important are that there are a lot of patients that have restrictive eating in GI clinics. And so kind of working at whether you're using a formal screener um, and the SCOF is a five question screener that's very available that at least gets you, you know, it's not in depth. It, it just is going to give you an idea of whether somebody meets some criteria for eating disorder or disordered eating or ask some open ended questions. You know, tell me about your relationship with food. Do you have any fear about eating? Um, how do you feel about, um, you know, your your current eating habits? And, and then let that be a guide to, you know, maybe I think that a good conversation with a registered dietitian will be really helpful in terms of liberalizing your diet. Um, or if, if a patient really is, is malnourished, is at risk for refeeding syndrome, is, is really in the midst of an eating disorder, connecting that patient with an eating disorder specialist. Yeah, brilliant. I might, I'll put the link to your paper uh, you mentioned a few of those questions. There's a, a longer list of questions on the paper that pa practitioners can consider to to ask their patients. It's really, really important. Um, just on that, have you found patients have been able to expand their diets um, by using, say, CBT or hypnosis and so forth? Yeah, so certainly if, if necessary, based on um, a patient's interest. So, you know, sometimes a patient will come in and, and have a pretty restrictive diet or we're, we're kind of suspecting that maybe they, they have ARFID, which is Avoidant Restrictive Food Intake Disorder, um, another hot area of research in gastroenterology patients because it's an eating disorder, but it's not an eating disorder driven by body image distortion. It's driven by wanting to avoid food because it causes pain. So we see this type of, of disordered eating a lot. And, and, you know, the prevalence rates are really um, something we're still trying to flush out truly in, in gastroenterology clinics. But um, we suspect it's a pretty high prevalence, maybe even upwards of 40% of, of patients with DGBI. Um, and so in those patients, you know, we may be able to work as a multidisciplinary team to help get their GI condition under control with the gastroenterologist, working to expand their diet with a registered dietitian and a GI psychologist helping to navigate some of the, the cognitive um, processes of anxiety and fear around eating and food. Um, sometimes we do that in our clinic. Um, and, and if it's more pervasive, if the, again, if the patient has more medical concerns around malnutrition or we're just not finding that our 
um, CBT strategies are, are working, then, then we may then incorporate an eating disorder specialist who is going to use more of the, the CBT for eating disorders, um, and, and which, you know, also are evidence-based, but a little bit more of an area of expertise for them than me. Yeah. Thank you. That's really, really important. Okay. Um, so we'll wrap it up in a moment. Um, I just want to yeah, say thanks. People don't know you've, you've done a full day of practice and I'm just amazed at how articulate and uh, detailed you are after seeing patients all day. So I really appreciate um, your time and energy. So before practitioner, before we leave, um, any sort of follow-up or threads or any um, resources if practitioners want to learn more about this area? Um, what Any suggestions on the next steps? Um, so the Rome Foundation is great for practitioners that are interested in learning more about psychogastroenterology. They have a lot of trainings um, and, and those are specific for people that are interested in DGBI and psychogastroenterology. Um, I'm affiliated also with um, GI On Demand, which is a joint venture of GastroGirl and the American College of Gastroenterology. And we've created and curated some webinars that are patient focused to help them learn more about their GI condition. So um, they're delivered by some of the, the leading GI psychologists um, and you can, you can find um, really great resources for both patients and then for practitioners to give to their patients to learn more about their conditions. So those are a couple. Brilliant. Uh, yeah, thank you so much. This less than an hour, you're jam-packed in so many clinical pearls and resources and tips. I really, really appreciate it. Uh, Megan, thanks so much for your time. You're doing incredible work. It must be very rewarding and satisfying, I imagine. So kudos to you and um, yeah, uh, keep in touch in the future. I'd like to, to follow up and see how things are progressing with all these new ideas in the pipeline. I would love that. Thank you so much for inviting me today. My pleasure. For useful links and resources, make sure you check out the show notes. The information provided in this episode is for educational purposes only and is not intended to be a substitute for health and medical care. Always consult a healthcare professional for medical advice.